Hi everyone, today I have Paul Moore and Di Stubbs with me from Winston's Wish. Hi! Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. They're joining me to talk about childhood bereavement and how important it is to have effective support in place when a child loses uh, a loved one. Their services are provided by some insurers to help families of the policyholder should the worst happen. And we're going to talk about how it all works. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So, Paul, Di, how are you both doing? How's lockdown treating you? All right, I think. It's the second one feels a little bit harder, I think, to me, but yeah. we're getting there. Christmas is on its way, <laughs> thankfully. And I, I think one of the stranger things is because we were set up to be able to answer calls remotely just at the right time, it's felt quite a lot like normal because we've both kept working um, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, we're, we're like a telephone based. So for us, going remote wasn't actually a, a huge thing. Um, mm-hmm. And all of our team had um, sort of like laptops to work from home anyway to be able to do remote stuff. But it just the fact that we can't be together, yes. you know, it seems weird. But it's, it is strange that you're right, Paul. It seems a little bit tougher this time, which is really bizarre because my children are allowed to be in school this time. So in all, in all fairness, I, I have absolutely nothing to complain about. Um, you know, everything. Yeah, I don't know whether it's the dark nights or the, the winter cold chill. It, there's just something about it this time that feels a little bit more intense. Absolutely. Even though it's actually less intense than the first time around. Yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's all like the whole not knowing as well. It's like, oh, it's happening again, you know, kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, I have such it, respect yeah. for people who were doing homeschooling as well as doing working, as well as doing coping with not going outside. I mean, such respect. Yeah. It was tough. <laughs> I'll just go, just like, you can hear me sort of giggle a little bit in the background. It's like, it's a little bit hysterical inside of like, it's over. Don't worry, company. It's, it's not happening. <laughs> Nervous laughter. Nervous laughter. Absolutely. Um, so we have a truth or lie feature on the podcast and it's your two jobs to figure out um, who was lying last time. So on the truth or lie last time, I had Alison Essen from AIG and she said that she puts up her Christmas tree on Christmas Eve. And I said that I put mine up two weeks before Christmas. So who do you think was telling the truth and who was lying? Well, I think it was Alison telling the truth because that's what I do. So I'm oh. going with Alison. I was going to go with Alison as well, actually. We'll stick together on this one and say Alison was telling the truth. (laughs) She is telling the truth. Absolutely. (laughs) I was so shocked when she said it. My face was just like, what? (laughs) Christmas Eve? I'm like, first of December. They have to be up first of December for me. (laughs) (laughs) Do they come down on Boxing Day as well? That's the the question. Oh, that is a question. You see, it's a tradition for us that we can't because my sister's birthday is Boxing Day. So she's just like, if we're going to have all the lights up, it's staying up for my birthday. We're having, (laughs) it's it's going to be celebrating a good while. Now, you see, I wonder if Alison was brought up on the same book I was brought up as a child. Probably not because I'm incredibly old. But there was a book which had all of the Christmas traditions. And in that, these perfect little children went out with their parent and cut down the tree on Christmas Eve and brought it in on Christmas Eve oh. and decorated it on Christmas Eve. And then they all sat around it having all of the Christmas stories about, you know, Father Christmas and yeah. Robins and, you know, all of this stuff. Um, and then didn't take it down until Twelfth Night for the true yes. 12 days of Christmas. So um, so I think my family believed that 
not believed it in a religious sense, believed it yeah. in a traditional sense. So um, my poor daughter's been, uh, you know, affected with that as well. <laughs> <laughs> she kept up the tradition. She tries to sneak lights up earlier. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> My mum was like two weeks before Christmas and now she's like first of December. Has to be yeah. first of December. But I suppose the thing is though, as well as if you do wait, the longer you wait, possibly even the more special it seems. It's not, it doesn't become yeah, like a normal thing around. in the house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And we have fairy lights up all the time anyway. So it was always pretty lights. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. So, guys, I know that you do some absolutely incredible work and I, I don't have like first-hand experience, but people close to me, I know, have experienced the support that you guys were able to give and it's, it was absolutely phenomenal for them. Can you start off with just tell us about Winston's, which for people who don't know, how did it start, what's happening now and what it is that you do? Yeah, of course. So um, Winston's Wish was the UK's first childhood bereavement charity. So we've been around since 1992 when our founder, Julie Stokes, who was a palliative care nurse at the time, uh, received a Winston Churchill Fellowship to look at children's bereavement services in the States and Canada. Um, so she returned to the UK and set up Winston's Wish, hence the name. Um, and we were founded really on the belief that if you brought grieving children together to share their experiences, that the effects would be truly transformative. Um, and the same remains true today, however, since our early days of running camps for grieving children in Gloucestershire, we've now grown to provide a truly national service. So we've now provided specialist support right across the country um, from our free phone national helpline, which provides immediate advice and reassurance primarily aimed at parents, family members and professionals supporting a child through to in-depth therapeutic support for the children themselves. So one-to-one -one sessions delivered either remotely through whichever technology is most appropriate or in person where we feel that that would really benefit the child in the long run yeah so I didn't realize that you do like specific camps I mean I imagine that's been really hard this year as well to sort of is, is that something that still happens the camps or has it had to all be changed not so much no so that was really how we started those were our early days so um obviously with limited resource back in the day we used to kind of bring children together for a really intensive course during a camp yeah. um, but now because we're able to provide the one-to-one -one support um, we tend not to do as many camps. We do tend, um, we have done residentials in the kind of last few years, which obviously have had to come to a stop this year. Yeah. Um, but there's not so much a focus throughout the year on the actual camps themselves. Okay. I know there's quite a bit as well about, it's, it's not just the family, is it, as well? So it can be, um, so I was reading something about how it can be teachers as well. So it's, it's, it's all about whatever's needed for that child and so like seeing every single aspect of who could be there to help is, is that right it's it's absolutely that it's about I mean through people would usually contact us first through the helpline and that is for anybody who is caring for a bereaved child so that could be parent grandparent foster carer teacher social worker palliative care team you know whatever so uh, so anybody can ring us to get sort of guidance on how to best support that child in, in what's happening for them. And I think the, the thing that um, Paul was sort of saying was that we're now able to offer that support, you know, remotely, admittedly, but to so many more people than you were able to do. So I don't think we will ever not recognise that meeting other children who've been bereaved is really important. Yeah. But sometimes it comes down to how many can you help? And it's yeah, it's absolutely. better to help hundreds than yes. a few. So, yeah. Absolutely. No, that, make, that makes perfect sense. 
I think that a lot of this is to be able to sort of guess some of the things that a child may experience um, when they face a bereavement. But I'm sure that, you know, I say I can guess a few things, but I'm sure I would miss a lot of essential parts as well. You know, because unless you're faced with that, you, you, I don't think you can necessarily figure out everything that somebody would be facing. Can you let us know a bit more about how bereavement can affect a child and how that, in a sense, can affect and shape their future, please? Well, I guess one of the things, you know, it sounds like such a fundamental question, but one of the questions is how old is the child? And also what other things have already gone on for them, you know, before this happens. So, for example, a, a little, you know, we develop our understanding about death and dying. So if you're bereaved before you really understand what this means and what the language means, it, it's really difficult. You just assume that somebody has left or abandoned you or just, you know, somehow magically just walked out of your life forever. And that is much more difficult than if you're a teenager who understands completely what's happened, but also has that ad adult understanding of what impact this is going to have on you for, you know, for the future occasions. So it's not so much as a teenager losing somebody now, it's about also losing them from your future. So age is really important. It's also important who the person was because um, it can be you know, somebody that was a more distant relative or somebody who was an you know, essential daily part of your life, you know, and your major you know, person that you loved the very, very most. Or it could be your terribly annoying big brother or your absolutely adorable baby sister. You know, it's who that person is also affects the child. And also whatever else is happening. You know, if somebody else is, you know, ill, you know, if granny is also ill as well as dad has died um, and the dog doesn't look well, you know, and somebody's lost their job and, you know, all of this stuff. So there are all sorts of factors that affect an individual child's sort of experience of bereavement. And, and depending on the sort of help and support they get, that can indeed go on to have, you know, effects to their future. I guess that's, you know, the point of Winston's Wish and the point of other bereavement services for children and young people is to try and make sure that the effect on their future as is, and I say minimised, I mean, you will always take your grief with you and your yeah. future will be altered but that you still have a future full of hope and possibilities that you would have had anyway. You know, you've just had this extra experience that's deepened maybe, you know, your heart. I think it's really interesting when you're saying about like the, the differences in the ages as well. So I've got um, three boys, nine, six and three. So a really good oh, yes. um, spread <laughs> of ages there. Yes. And um, so like in the in the first lockdown, um, we did lose um, it's, it's sort of so... My, my husband's auntie so so yeah their great auntie who the eldest the all met well, I think the oldest two had met but not enough to remember her so you know they wouldn't have been able to say oh the person who looked like this it was just it was it been such a long time ago and it wasn't someone that we sort of like regularly kind of came from conversations and um but then this time we've also lost a um their, one of their great uncles um in this lockdown and again somebody you know that's that's not close to them but you can you can I can see a big difference obviously my three-year-old it, no concept whatsoever he's just running around yes. and quite happy he, he just you know you could say it to him he doesn't understand the slightest mm. my six-year-old 
kind of understand he started listening and that and he, he can understand but it kind of just goes over his head at the same time because i think he's possibly a little bit like well you know because you know when you see them watching tv shows and different things like that and someone maybe passes in it it's kind of like that thing of us saying to him well that's a story so that per- actual person hasn't passed but this is what the, you know and so i think he's kind of in that stage of being confused yeah. but then with my eldest you can see that there's just that level of comprehension coming in now and he just gets a little bit He's fine, you know, because it's, it's not somebody who's incredibly, that he's been incredibly close to, but you just see that there's maybe mm. about like half a minute or so, a minute, that he just kind of, just goes quiet for a minute and you can just tell he's thinking and he's, and he's yeah. obviously thinking about all the different aspects of it and then he's okay. Um, but I think there's also a bit of fascination, I think, possibly at that age as well as, as to it. And then I think there's possibly a bit of guilt about being fascinated by it, possibly. Absolutely. I mean, well, they're not. I think that you've your family perfectly embodies those sort of stages that we go through as children in understanding. And so, to begin with, you know, we, the sort of the way we understand, um, if you don't mind me going off down a diversion, is go for it. Love is, it. You know, the the hamster isn't moving. Can I make the hamster move again? Oh, the hamster yeah. is this thing called dead. Um, we've got a new hamster. Um, oh, grandpa is this thing called dead. Will he still pick me up from football? Yeah. Um, oh, grandpa is this thing called dead and he won't pick me up from football again. Yeah. That old people die. If old people die, that means that granny will also die. Um, oh, all people die. That means that mummy and daddy and Mr. Sharples or whatever yeah. will die. Oh, hang on. All people die. I will die. Yes, I can kill myself. And that usually takes us up until about nine or 10, you know, and yeah. by then we've got pretty much, depending, you know, on our learning difficulties or, you know, neurotypicalness or whatever, we've usually got an understanding of that. And so for a child who is bereaved at three, they sort of understand it again at five and again at seven and again at 10. You know, so it's, it's tough for a kid who is bereaved of somebody really close and important to them at a very young age because they sort of re-understand it over and over again. I suppose as well, there's the whole, one of my son's friends um, did have um, a father who'd passed away when he was quite young. And I think it does come into that thing. It's, it's all the things, isn't it? It's, it's parents' evenings. It's coming for the Christmas plays. Mm. It's, you know, the sports days, everything. There's, there's that... On that subtle reminder, yeah. um, in a sense that that there's something different happening, and, and it is, you know, kind of like probably a, a little bit of a, a bereavement each time because mm-hmm. um, you are having to revisit it, which I think is incredibly hard. Yeah. So it's a lot to face. It's a lot to face as an adult, let alone as a as a child. And as an adult, and well, as a teenager, and as an adult, I think that we are, as as I was saying, even more aware of how that person will also be missing in our future. And that is one of the things which makes it hard for adults to be bereaved is that we've got all of those memories of that person, all of our understanding of how important they are to us now at this moment in time and how much we're going to miss them in the future. We also have a perspective which goes how terribly sad for them to miss out on all of this stuff in the future. Yes. Whereas for children, it's much more immediate. I need my mum to hold me now yeah. and and she can't and that's not bearable 
I think something that sort of like it's just triggered in my mind actually as we've been chatting as well is that when I was nine um, a classmate of mine unfortunately died in a very very freak accident mm. and um, and that was incredibly hard you know because you know even though he's a friend he wasn't like a best friend or whatever but he was you know it, it, you know it was such a shock because it was like he was there one day he wasn't there we obviously then had this massive um, funeral where everybody attended um, and it's, it, that's really stood with me, stuck with me because obviously in, in the nature that he had passed away, that's led me to be very paranoid about certain activities with my children. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I, I'm just, obviously I won't go into it too much um, in that book because obviously it's anonymity and things like that, but um, it really, really, so like, and then obviously my kids now pick up and they'll say, why don't you like us having this or doing this? And I'll just have to say, my eldest knows, my middle child possibly knows a little bit because again I want to protect him from it um but it's just you know when they're getting frustrated at you because they're just like well I want to do this and you're just like well no <laughs> you're just not doing it <laughs> and it's just trying to sort of it, it does it really really it stays with you I mean what the other part of that kind of conversation around why we do what we do is not just in the immediate term but also as a preventative tool so I think we're always conscious that actually for children who haven't received that support that there are long-term impacts that can not necessarily always be prevented but that can be minimized or um, we can do our best to try and help that child to overcome that so they don't need to go through that situation so looking at the long-term mm-hmm. impacts on their mental health yeah. their employment you know their their education their um you know failing to gain any sort of qualification these are all things that are linked to children who have been bereaved and we can see that from the research that has been produced and also thinking about you know even the more stark side of things of looking at children who've ended up in the corrective system, just because of that, you know, you can't necessarily pinpoint that moment in their life and say, well, you know, they've ended up in prison because of this thing that's happened to them. But actually there is that trend that you can go back and see that there was that key thing that happened in their childhood. And there is a natural trend that follows on. I think that's something that we're always conscious of that this isn't just about providing a, an emotive support or providing something that is, um, I think people often look at our work and think it's a, a real kind of cushy, lovely thing to be able to provide because that child is sad, which is absolutely one part of what we do. But there is also that part of actually with there's a serious nature to what we do in terms of preventing the yeah. long term impacts. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what thing that, um, so, so like as an, as an example, you know, so like I said, if I'm an insurance policyholder and something's happened, I'm worried, or you know, anybody, as you say, you know, anybody can call them and bring the helpline. Um, but what would, what is the process in a sense? What happens? I appreciate this may be different between, you know, sort of a, a young child and somebody who's older. Um, but what would be the general steps that would happen when somebody contacts you? What's, what's that process of what happens? Well, I guess the first thing is that initial call. So people can also contact us, of course, by email. We also have instant messenger. Once in a while, we actually still get a letter, would you believe? Um, But mainly, the great majority of our calls come through through our helpline as the first point of call. And I guess that that phone call, that initial phone call, can be um, a few minutes, can go, you know, up to 45 minutes or or even longer. And I guess what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand the situation. We're trying to hear about the children concerned. We're trying to understand some of those things I was, you know, exploring to begin with, you know, what else is going on at the moment? 
did the children, was this a sudden death? Was this an expected death? You know, what sort of support have they got around? And we'll give some initial guidance on ways of talking about, um, about death, talking about this particular death. We'll give some ideas of support for children because sometimes the call will come in from somebody who's just experienced a bereavement or the children have, or it might've been 10 years ago and now the effect is coming through. So depending on those circumstances, we might be exploring slightly different things. Um, sometimes that call is all that's needed. Sometimes we'll arrange a second call because, um, you know, to take a recent example, somebody who, who called us because the parent had died, the, you know, the other parent had literally died and they were on their way to the school to pick up the children. And how do I explain, you know, what has happened? Um, and they couldn't then, they also wanted to know about how do I talk about the funeral? Do I keep them off school? Do I whatever? And under those circumstances, we would be arranging a call back ourselves so that we would speak to them another, you know, once or twice. But um, after a, a period of time after a bereavement, we don't tend to rush in too quickly because there's so much chaos in those first early days and yeah. weeks. But we would be able to actually then pass them across to our wonderful team of people who could do a little bit more in-depth work either working with a parent or a carer to, um, to support the children, um, you know, giving them ideas and tools and, and opportunities and guidance, or working directly with the children if they were a little bit older and could handle the at-a-distance support. Yeah. I think that was one of going to be sort of my next questions, in a sense, is that, because I know that with some support services, especially when it comes to maybe things like counselling or, like, different things that can be on offer that there is kind of like an age limit in the sense of you must be at least 16 or 18 to be able to actually receive that support directly um so I was going to say that was the next thing to sort of say is it possible I mean obviously I appreciate with young children that's not going to be something that's going to be easy at all to do remotely um but obviously it's, it's good to know that there are instances where you are able to, to obviously step in and do that is, is am I right in thinking that counseling is something that would be maybe potentially on offer or is that sort of like more of like a, maybe a referral type process to the NHS or something like that? I'm, just, I'm not sure how it works. Well, I guess for the part of our service, which is aimed at supporting parents and carers, our age range would go from naught to, you know, 20, 25 or whatever, yeah. because that's about giving them the support. So if their little people are, naught and two and five we could still offer support to the parents to support the children um for older children they need to, you know obviously they need the support of somebody around while we are working with them because it can be emotional or challenging or you know tough you know to do um and so we we sort of have a bit of a wobbly line on that about when those children are old enough you know there's not like you know ah, oh, you're eight, we can now do it, you know. Yeah. Some seven-year-olds would respond tremendously to that, some 10-year-olds wouldn't, you know, so it's yeah. a bit of a wobbly line, um, depending on our sort of initial contact. But we are able to offer support now, either through either prong of our service, up to 25-year-olds. 
And I, I believe, because um, I know um, most people have probably who are listening will have heard Lindsay's story when she uh, came on a few months ago talking about losing her mum earlier this year. And I know that she obviously accessed your service and absolutely brilliant. Um, and she's she's really sorry beforehand. She's so excited that I'm doing this. You know, sorry being able mm-hmm. to sort of showcase what you guys are doing. But I believe as well, there's things like you know some some sort of like books as well that are available to sort of help. It's so like really explain it to the children. But again, I think it's that thing. So I was looking on the website as well. So there's like different ages, I think, of the books, isn't there? Just to try and, again, just make it something that is really understandable to the child. Yep. We have specialist publications that we produce ourselves. So we have a book about supporting children who are under five, a book for the primary age range, a book for the secondary age range, and a book for children who um, maybe have special educational needs and understanding. And we have a couple of workbooks that go along with that, which have got some activities in that for children. But also through the helpline, we can, or through our email service, we can also recommend books that are sort of commercially available that help fill in the picture for children so we can make specific recommendations for specific families and say ah one that might help here is you know we can't provide that ourselves but this is you know a great one to talk about this particular death of this particular person okay i know i'd say just looking at the the website there was um and and there's a shop and there was so many different things on it like i said there was the books there was the memory boxes there was quite a few different things and i think you know it's it's one of those things where I don't know I wonder if some people would so I think everybody instinctively would want to do some kind of a memory box but then I wonder if some people would maybe be a little bit apprehensive because it could also be for them too emotional to be doing that you know putting in all those memories of a partner and a parent of their child you know it's that's, that's, that's a lot actually to be faced with on top of everything else you know and um, I suppose a big question is, is just is how important is that for, for children and what's kind of like the feedback that people give or potentially children give as they get older as to how important these these services have been for them. So picking up the memory box bit specifically, if I could just pick up that. Um, yeah. the, the thing about an, a memory box is it's, it's a tool for encouraging families and individuals to refresh their memories, to think about their memories, to revisit memories and things like that. It's nothing, nothing more, nothing less. And it needn't be a, a smart box with, you know, pictures on it. It can be an ordinary shoe box or it can be a drawer of a, of a chest of drawers or something. But for children, it can be really helpful to have something concrete to base a memory around. And that in turn helps you access maybe some of the other memories that are not so concrete. And the sort of things that we would be encouraging, and sometimes, I mean, what I should say is that a lot of our conversations are with people who um, are facing their own death. So it's people who are preparing for, you know, for for dying. So they're, they're pre-death conversations. And sometimes you'll find parents start off a memory box before they die, if they know that they are, you know, they have a terminal illness. Um, and that can be really helpful for children because then the parents can help label them and say, this was a, a shell from um, that holiday we had, you know, when your nan fell in the sea, you know, or whatever. And this is um, a ticket from that uh, concert that you were really far too young for me to take you to, but, you know, we had this amazing time. Or it was, um, these are some of the cards you sent me and some of the cards I sent you. And, and, And then afterwards, you know, after somebody has died, if you're creating a memory box at that time, 
you can put in things that the child really links to that person, which can be something like a perfume or an aftershave that they wore or a scarf or a tie, as well as those other things like, you know, stones and special yeah. teddies and things like that. And what happens is you don't have to look at it every day. You can keep it under your bed. You can keep it somewhere else. But when you actually look at it, turning over the items helps you turn over the memories in your mind. Yeah. And and it, it just it's a bit like, you know, saving a computer file. You know, yeah. you're, you're refreshing it. You're keeping the new version and you're keeping some of those memories more vividly than you might do otherwise. Absolutely. I, I, that's with the baby keepsake boxes. I've got them for each of my children. Every now and then I'll look into them and it's that thing of like, you know, the first outfit that they had and like the first lock of hair. And it, it, it is just, it just immediately, it's, it's obviously, it's, it's a very positive thing when it's, it's that kind of a situation. But I hadn't even thought about using the keepsake box in the sense of for somebody who was terminally ill in regards to, to doing that with a child. I imagine that's an incredibly... I've heard the things like, you know, writing the birthday cards every year up until like a certain age or something. But, um, but yeah, I've not heard of it that way. And I think that'd be incredibly um, emotional, but powerful thing to do, um, especially as well, if you're able to include the child in it, because then each time they see it, they'll again, they'll, it'll evoke that extra memory of having done it. Yeah. That's brilliant. Yes, indeed. Yes. Parents who, who, you know, are able, you know, whether they are the person who is ill or the, person who will survive you know prepare children you know for a parent's death quite extraordinary people you know absolutely extraordinary but all ordinary people become extraordinary under those circumstances yes well I think you have to don't you there's there's no choice you have to have to just get it's it's that typical British thing isn't it you just have to get on with it but you have to step up and and get through it and everything but it's just making sure that we're all emotionally and mentally intact as we're getting as we're getting through which I think Mm -hmm. is the best thing there so I think you possibly have some case studies for us to to maybe just have a a little chat through am I right when when you were talking and and thinking about stories I mean I guess I mean we hear so many we get about somewhere between 20 25 30 calls a day on the helpline so if you can imagine how many uh, and those people are probably supporting on average about well, on average, two children. Occasionally, you'll hit, you know, seven children in a family or a blended yeah. family of 10 children or a yeah. whole primary school class involved because, like you were suggesting, yeah. it was a classmate who died or something. Yeah. Um, but so you can imagine how many that so we're helping, like 60, of you know, 70 children a day indirectly through this support. And about, about half of our calls, roughly, are from are about children who've had an expected death. Doesn't mean it's expected as far as the children are concerned, but yes. it was a death through illness. Even if they were old enough to know what was happening, it's always a surprise at the last yeah. minute. Getting on for a quarter of our calls are about a death by suicide. Okay. So that is actually growing to maybe be as much as a third of the calls that we have are about a death by suicide. And then the rest of the calls are about deaths that happen suddenly, like an accident um, or through violence, you know, yeah. um, or, you know, road traffic collision, that sort of that sort of yeah. thing um, or a heart attack, you know, a sudden illness that that, yes. that sort of happens. So I guess if we're thinking of, of, of 
stories around that and some of the complications that can happen. One of the ones I was thinking about this morning, and I'm changing details here, you know, and, and because we'd, we'd only ever talk about anonymous cases, you know, for our confidentiality reason. But I was thinking about a call I had with um, a grandparent who had moved in with their own child when that child had a, a terminal diagnosis um, in order to look after the three children and their own child um, and had become sort of such a crucial part of that family. And the family was a little three stroke four year old um, mm. who was increasingly clingy, of course, because of the circumstance mm. of you know, having a parent who was increasingly unavailable because of their own illness. Um, so really was a shadow of the grandparent. Um, a middle one who had just had a diagnosis and support package being put in place for um, autism. Right. And an older one who was just being prepared to move up to secondary school. Oh, and wow. and um, with the great support of the grandparent they were able you know they you know they were there the parent died they went to the funeral they were supported and then estranged other parent turned up and they disappeared off with estranged other parent to live 300 miles away from the gran um, in a different part of the country altogether now that doesn't mean that was a negative thing that might have been an extraordinary thing for a family but it meant for the little three-year-old suddenly going away from the only two people that they yeah. were really familiar with it meant that the statement process would have to start all over again for yeah. for the middle child and the the elder one would have to go through that whole change the secondary school without any peers or anybody else going along with them so I only think of that particular call because it brings up so many, you know, for me, it also brings up the, the difficulty for the grand who was saying, well, what do I do now I'm 300 miles away? What can I do most helpfully? And then we were talking about the books and the memories and how you capture these memories and how you, yeah. and how hopefully we could support the dad to support the children as well. And that's yeah. the beauty of being able to offer this service nationally is that we, you know, you can reach just as easily to the dad um, as uh, you know as we could to to the grand who was you know physically living nearer. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that case study is just incredible. I'm I'm not I refuse to cry while the podcast is recording, <laughs> um, but that really just gets me obviously thinking of my three year old and you know what. Yeah, yeah. That just can't think about it. Thank you for sharing that. As you say, there's so many different aspects to that. You know, it's, it's preparing, getting everything in place, maybe seeing like a bit of a glimmer of hope and then everything just suddenly turning completely upside down again. It's it's incredible. And as I said, I, it wasn't to say that that was necessarily a negative outcome. It was just how it, it shows how children, when somebody important to them dies, they don't just lose in inverted commas you know yeah. it's, uh, one of those confusing words for children but they don't just lose that person they may lose a huge amount so you yeah. may need to um to go to live with somebody else your grandparents or your other parent or an auntie or something and that means you lose your familiar bedroom your familiar uh, bush that you have a den in in the garden you know the 
the school, the teachers that you love, you know, the corner shop, um, the playground. It's it's there's a lot of what we call secondary losses that can come, you know, when somebody dies. I think that goes back to the thing I was saying earlier as well, saying that I can imagine, you know, I think a lot of us can guess in a sense what a child goes through, but you don't think about all that. You don't think about the fact that the, you know, everything, like you say, the friendships, the just being the, the familiarity of, or oh, if I'm going to go to the shops, this is the route and I'll be able to see my favourite tree and, you know, the yes. different things like yes. that. There's, there's so many different aspects to it. The cat that sits on the wall on that walk that you always yeah. have. Mm, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, I think obviously um, the, the work that you guys are doing is obviously absolutely essential. And I think what's, you know, it's like a bit strange for me is the fact that it's only probably in the last few years or so that I've been really, because of the, the industry that I work in, that I've become quite familiar with yourselves. And I just think it's, it's, it's so important to get the message of what you guys can offer out there. So I suppose, Paul, what's, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you guys? Well, I think in general, obviously, this is the uh, protection podcast. So I think it's worth pointing out that our partnerships with the protection industry is absolutely vital. Um, in fact, it was our partnership with Swiss Life, which launched our helpline back in 2001. So it's really been integral to our growth and who we are. Um, and, you know, while we while we have you, I think it's an opportunity to talk about how we work with insurers um, and the fact that we do that in a number of ways. But really, that's around... Um, building bespoke agreements that's right for them and their customers. Um, but typically, um, what would that mean would be looking at creating a unique phone number for that insurer so they can then promote that to their customers as part of their value-add benefits and at the point of claim. Um, so that means that when the customer calls, we know who their insurer is and they're made aware that their call has been answered thanks to the support of their insurer, yeah. um, which I think is really important, actually, at reminding them that actually this, although it is, like you pointed out, it is a, a generally available service to the public yeah. it's that point of reminder of saying actually this has been a answered thanks to cure or thanks to whoever yeah. it was that put you in contact with us um, and at that point you know we already discussed that kind of pathway but a professional practitioner like Di would then speak with the customer to answer any immediate concerns or questions that they might have um, and then refer them on for that ongoing support with our team um, through digital or remote services or in some cases face-to-face -face if they felt that was right depending on the situation um, and that support then typically follows a kind of program of at least six sessions over a period of six months. Um, and during those sessions, they'll focus on all sorts of things, developing relationships, the uniqueness of their family, the network support that they have around them, um, exploring memories like we've already talked about, um, and allowing the child to explore their own worries, um, those challenges that they might not have thought about, um, and really just ways of coping um, alongside a professional who can help them kind of understand and guide them through those concerns. Um, and that's what we do with the protection industry. You know, it's about creating bespoke arrangements that work for them and for us. Yes. Um, but like you say, it's, um, it is an accessible um, service for anyone who needs our help. Um, and the best way to get in touch with us is, as Di said earlier, through our helpline. So um, anyone can call that during office hours on 08088 um, or they can visit our website. So it's winstonswish.org. Absolutely. I think the thing that's sticking in my mind at the moment is when you were saying, Di, that you get about 20 to 25 calls a day. And it's, it's actually just, I'm, I'm getting a little bit of shivery. That's <laughs> actually thinking about it. It's just, um, it's it, the amount of children who are clearly suffering bereavements. I just, 
I'm, I'm going to go and use a calculator in a minute and try and figure that out. And then I'm going to really upset myself for the rest of the day thinking well, about it. But let me tell you the figure because I think that's really, really important to put it into, into context because I don't think people realise how common it is for a child to lose a parent. So specifically a parent um, about, brace yourself, Catherine, about 111 children a day lose a parent. A day. A day. So that's about 45, 44, 45,000 children a year. And if you actually, by the time children hit 16, that means that there's a cohort of about 300,000 children who've lost a parent, specifically a parent. And one way we try and make this real is that, um, you know, there was a British firm on the um, on the top floors of one of the Twin Towers. Um, uh, I think it's I didn't realise that, actually. Cantor, uh, was it Cantor Fitzgerald, um, something like that. And we, we estimate, or it is estimated, that about 69 children were bereaved in 9-11, the, mm. the event that we call 9-11. Yeah. But actually, on 9-11, on that same day, nearly double the number would have been bereaved of a parent as well. And on yeah. 9-12, and yesterday, and today. You know, there are this everyday tragedies just because sometimes we bundle them up into a number. But actually, it's a it's a huge it breaks down as about one in 25, 26 children. Um, So like one in an average classroom will lose a parent. And if you then add in the ones who have experienced the death of a sibling or a grandparent who was extremely close to them, you know, it's the number is. It's a very, it's a very important issue that gets really overlooked. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, again, that just, it kind of encapsulates everything that's been said as well. It's just the fact of one, it's just making sure just for the, you know, the right thing to do, how important your services are to help those children. But then what you were saying as well, Paul, about how it can be linked so much to like um, correction facilities and, and, and different things like that as to how this could potentially you know, it's, it's, it's just incredible. And, and I think, you know, I, I'm one of those people, I'm never really keen on statistics. I like stories, but those statistics are absolutely, you know, you, you, could, you can't ignore just how important they are and how much they stand out. I had no idea it was yeah. that common. And you, you'd kind of think with all we know about how much, you know, there's cancer about and everything else and the tragic accidents that can happen, even when you experience them sorry, locally to you, you don't necessarily think about all the, all the things that are happening to them. It's huge. I think that one in 20, um, I usually say it's one in 29, but I'll I'll take Di's figure of one in 25. Um, In terms of that one in every classroom, you know, the work that we do with schools, for example, then really comes into its own. Because if you think if that teacher is in front of a classroom, that class is likely to change every year and they will be coming into contact with, you know, not just one child that year, but actually potentially one child every year or multiple children every year. And they're spending the majority of their day with that person at the front of their classroom, relying on them for their emotional support. And, you know, how does that person face that? And so during the first lockdown, we launched um, a new online training system for teachers. So that was um, free of charge to any teacher who needed it. And it really just talked about the basics of childhood bereavement and how to support a child in that situation. Things to think about in your classroom. Really simple things, things like if you're telling a story and that involves somebody who dies, actually just being mindful that there's a child in your classroom who has faced that um, and making sure that there's support available for that child um, ahead of time. 
And we were absolutely astounded that over 15,000 teachers downloaded that resource within the first lockdown mm -hmm. because there was just this real wave of panic from teachers and, and schools saying, actually, we don't know what we're going to face when schools reopen. We don't know how many kids are going to come back to our school and will have lost a parent, will have lost a grandparent, will have lost somebody close to them because of this horrific uh, you know, situation that we find ourselves in. Um, and that really brought it to life for me to think about actually the work that we could do there was about educating teachers. And we'd, you know, we'll never know the impact that that had on the thousands of children that they were able to support thanks to that. Because, you know, for everyone that reaches out to us to say thank you yeah. and was able to support a child, there will be five of us that don't ever need to tell us that. And that's, Absolutely. I think, really important. Absolutely. And that's just reminded me actually saying all that is to say going back to the situation when I was nine, I remember now the, the head teacher and all the teachers in the hall, obviously having to sit the entire school down. because it was, it was a smallish school, um, but, you know, I mean, we're still a couple of hundred kids at least. And us all being sat down and being told the following morning as to what had happened. I just remember my, my, the head teacher's face now and how it just, his face just crumpled and, you know, the emotion. And I think that was part of obviously for all the kids as well. What probably made it even more emotional for us is because, there was this big man who was the head teacher and, you know, he'd, he'd obviously he'd lost it and um, understandably so. Yeah. And, um, and so did all the other teachers and just trying to figure out how they could all get. So I think that's yeah incredible that, you know, mm. teachers obviously actively looking at doing that, but that, that you're able to have provided that resource is just phenomenal. Yeah. We're coming towards the end of the podcast now and it does feel a little bit strange to <laughs> a live feature after talking about <laughs> such such emotional and important things so I feel terrible for putting you on the spot like this now um but we're but, but but I think the key thing to say is exactly what Paul has said you know which is that we're about hope it's perfectly great it's great for kids to laugh and to have fun you know it's about you know this is a huge and terribly sad thing but they're still entitled to have their fun and you know it's uh, it's they can't about... be guilty for enjoying life exactly exactly so um so you don't have to feel guilty for talking about that. <laughs> I know, for some reason, I've got a child. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll do the, the, then, the very good thing about hope then. So all of us have been so hopeful over Christmas. So we're going to have our little Truth Our Life feature over our favourite thing at Christmas. And I now kick off to say that my favourite thing is carol singers. We'd like to go next, Paul. My favourite thing is actually the work Christmas party. And my favourite thing is the smell and the taste of chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Ah, oh, very nice, very nice. Well, thank you, Paul and Di, for joining me. It's been lovely having you both on and to be talking about this topic. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for the opportunity and the support. Absolutely, absolutely. Next time, I'm going to be speaking with Alan Knowles and we're going to be doing an income protection masterclass. If you'd like a reminder of the next episode, please drop me a message on social media or visit the website www.practical-protection.co.uk. And please don't forget that if you listen to this as part of your work, you can claim a CPD certificate on the website too. Thank you both again. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye.